Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I am your host, writer-director Christopher R. Mim, and I have to ask, because I always do and it's become a thing, are you there? Are you listening? How can I be sure? I mean, you may be looking at me, but are you paying attention? Are you focused and honed in on my voice? Or am I simply background noise? Either way, I guess, you're listening, and that's cool. Maybe you'll absorb some of it, and uh, you won't know where it's from, where you suddenly have this knowledge of things like when one of the Mimiverse films is screening next, or how the Minnesota State Fair will be showing the films of Christopher R. Mim again this year at the Blue Moon Dining Theater. You'll just rattle these facts off and be like, where did I hear about that? Where'd that come from? It's possible. Or you're laser-focused on every little word I may utter, and you're just hanging on every single word coming out of my mouth. Probably none of those things. Thanks for listening, though. I appreciate you. I really, I really do. I dig you. You're cool. You're a person that makes me happy that I know you. And if I don't know you, it would make me happy to someday know you. So what's going on in the Mimiverse, you ask? Uh, stuff, shall we say. Mostly behind-the-scenes stuff. There's not a lot of, of public stuff happening. We're in that stage, as the latest film, Demon with the Atomic Brain, comes together, where I'm kind of alone in my bat cave, which I guess literally is more or less a bat cave because I made a movie with a bat that took place in a cave uh, in my basement, which is where my quote-unquote bat cave is. Alone in my bat cave, editing the new movie. Principal photography of Demon with the Atomic Brain is complete. We finished it in the first weekend of June. And it was bittersweet. It felt good to be done with the film, but it did not feel good to say sayonara to the new friends I've made, the new Mimiverse folks out there who've joined the universe. I really did enjoy seeing those folks every week or so. We had a lot of fun. We had a lot of laughs. A lot of good, solid laughs. And I had a good time, I think. There were were moments that got testy. There were moments that got very intense. But that's the nature of being creative. Sometimes things get intense. Sometimes things are really, really fun. And you just, you never want them to end. Sometimes things get really intense and hard to take. I mean, it's hard to just take it all, you know? But you try. And ultimately... You do. In the end, it just it feels so good to have finished. And so, here I am, alone, in my office, working hard. You know, really going at it. Trying to get this thing done in time for when I'd like to premiere it. Which, ideally, and I mentioned this last month, would be Wednesday, October 4th. And now I have extra incentive to get it out by that date. Because the Lake Charles Film Festival asked me to come back and present it that following weekend. So if I don't have a movie done, and I don't premiere it, I can't do that. And I want to do that, so I'm going to. On top of that, I figure I can wrap that in to the Dallas premiere of the film as well. For you DFW fans of the Mimiverse, you've been very good to me, and I I very much appreciate you. And all that you've done to help spread the Mimiverse far and wide. I want to do the world premiere, which, of course, I'll do at the Heights in Columbia Heights, Minnesota here. 
and then I want to go down to Dallas and show it there, and then move on to Lake Charles and do it there, and then, uh, you know, see what happens. It'll be October. It's the Mimiverse screening season, as I call it. October's always good to the Mimiverse, which makes sense if you think about it. The films I make are family-friendly monster movies. Kids from age 2 to 142 can enjoy my films without worrying about them traumatizing anybody, although some of those two- and three-year-olds might be a little freaked out by some of these monsters, but they'll get over it, and they'll be stronger, better, faster. Suddenly they're bionic. I don't know. Um, They'll be fine. Kids love my movies. And so the Halloween season, which, you know, October, Halloween season, tends to be very generous to my work. I had uh, some issue last year with releasing Wereskito Nazi Hunter at the end of September. I was a little worried about switching things up from May because we've done so well in the spring. But I think in retrospect, it probably makes a lot more sense to premiere my films in October or late September, the fall, because they fit with the motif better. Monster movies, cheesy horror movies, sci-fi space adventures with bug-eyed monsters. It's just, it lends itself to Halloween much more than it does, I think, spring. And there was a bit of an adjustment last September, putting out a movie at that time. Attendance was down a little bit. I think some of that had to do with, and I'm still analyzing this, which I should just leave it alone, but I think some of that had to do with, uh, we had a lot of people who would always show up every spring to see whatever I was putting out, and it became, you know, their tradition, and I was, I was messing with their traditions, and I bet you some of those folks didn't even know I put out a new movie. So, there's that. But we're just kind of shifting the tradition into the fall. When we did release the movies in the spring, often I'd do the world premiere, and then it was kind of weirdly quiet. I do a lot of conventions, but not a lot of screenings. So, yeah. Demon with the Atomic Brain is done. I mean, it's not done. Principal Photography is done. And should everything continue the way it's going, I'll have it done in time for the October premiere. If not, we won't premiere it, obviously, because it won't be done. But I have over 45 minutes of it edited. 45 minutes of a movie that will most likely be 75 at most. A lot of what's left is is not entirely special effects heavy, which can slow things down. There are a couple scenes that are, but even that shouldn't be a problem. There's some conversational stuff. There's big chunks that are done that I'm really happy with. And I'm waiting on some stop-motion animation from Mr. Norman Yeend, who's done all the stop-motion for the Mimiverse films up till now. Looking forward to that. He he promised to get it back to me by the end of the month, so we're good there. I trust the guy. He's awesome. And we're waiting on one model from Mitch Gonzalez, who is working on it now. And once I have that, I can move into a couple of scenes. Uh, and that's that's it. Then it's done. So I'm just going to be buckling down here. I'd like to be at the point where I hit September, and I'm basically done with the film which gives me about 10 weeks. 10 weeks is a lot of time to get a lot done. But I'm not too worried. I'll start worrying at some point. If I'm not authoring the home video release by the first week in September, I will panic then. That process doesn't take that long. I can be doing that on the side while still editing the film because the authoring process is just putting the DVD and whatnot together. I am looking into the possibility of releasing this one on Blu-ray instead. But uh, there's a whole bunch of bullcrap that seems to come along with that. Not everyone has a Blu-ray player. 
Some people just didn't upgrade. They just went straight from DVD to digital downloads. And that's a whole different can of worms with the digital downloads. I've been having a lot of discussions with people about what comes next after physical media. I believe there will still be a market for physical media, but I'm already seeing a downturn in sales of physical media and an uptick in digital downloads, of which you can rent or own any of my films on Amazon Prime. So if you are one who really doesn't want to own DVDs or what have you, you can view my films on Amazon Prime. So find them there. And I've been talking to a few other folks about the possibility of expanding that reach beyond Amazon Prime. So I really don't have much to say about it now. We shall see what happens with that. And if anything does, you, of course, will be the first to hear about it. Because I always tell you first. Right? Maybe? So that's really all that's going on in the Mimiverse right now. Finishing up the movie. And I'm very excited to be finishing up the movie. I'm very excited to be at this point. I'm really, really happy with how the movie has been turning out. I think this is going to take people by surprise with how good it really is. I know my movies are all cheesy and certainly not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And I know some are good and some are bad and some are okay and some are fantastic. So... I would imagine going into any one of my films, people are open-minded, but willing to accept that it may not be the best thing ever. (laughs) But this one might be, and it's turning out really, really good. And I'm very proud of it, and I'm very proud of the people who have been helping. It's going to be unique in that a lot of new faces. Faces I think you'll, you'll like. Fine people who I'm very excited for you to experience. So I can't wait for that. Be on the lookout. I'm sure you will be, seeing as you like my movies enough to listen to me yammer on about them month after month. Then again, you may just skip ahead to the Beef McCormick chapter and uh, never hear what I have to say. Thank you for those who listen every month. I love you. Mostly platonically. Mostly just appreciatively. Some of you, maybe more. Some of you, maybe less. Some of you are my favorite. Some of you are not. Alright, I'm in a weird mood, so I'd like to apologize for it. I'm just very excited. Are you excited? I hope you're excited, because I am excited. This month, July 2017, there are a couple cool chances to see some movies. Saturday, July 7th, Wereskito Nazi Hunter will be back at the Time Community Theater in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Uh, I will be personally presenting a free screening of the film, so you should stop on by. We've been there several times at the cool little... Friday Fright Night they have, and I'm looking forward to going back and seeing all you fine folks there who go every time. I know there's a handful of you out there who do, in fact, because I'm starting to recognize you all. Then on July 8th, that Saturday at 2 o'clock, Terror from Beneath the Earth, yes, you heard that right, Terror from Beneath the Earth will screen at the Delco Film Festival in Wallingford, Pennsylvania. I was contacted recently by my good friend Justin Overlander, who plays Sheriff Elliot in Terror from Beneath the Earth. A friend of his was throwing a film festival and asked if he could play Terror from Beneath the Earth. And Justin asked me, of course, because Justin is cool and understands that I should have a say in where my stuff shows. And I said, yes, of course. It's a little weird. The movie came out in 2009. And I think, honestly, this is the film festival debut of Terror from Beneath the Earth which is pretty cool, but better late than never. 
So if you're anywhere near Wallingford, Pennsylvania, on Saturday, July 8th at 2 o'clock, stop on down to the Foundry Church off 25 Cedar Road and see Terror from Beneath the Earth. Bring the kids, they'll love it. It has one of the most popular Mimbaverse monsters of all time in it. The Bat. So that's it. That's what's going on in the Mimiverse. I've been having a lot of fun adventures. I went out to Monster Bash and hung out with Derek Cook of Monster Kid Radio. You guys know Derek Cook's voice, or you should. I'm guessing you listen to his show, Monster Kid Radio, found at monsterkidradio.net. One of the best podcasts available, especially if you're a fan of cheesy retro cinema, as I am. Hung out with my buddies, Mark Hader, who you all should know as General Castle. And the master Mimiverse monster maker, Mitch Gonzalez. We drove out there. It was in Pittsburgh. Along the way, we picked up Stephen D. Sullivan, the author of Canoe Cops vs. the Mummy, which you can pick up right now at Amazon.com. Just go there and search for Canoe Cops vs. the Mummy and pick it up. You can get it either in Kindle or print form. We also ran to movie monster kid Rich Chamberlain, who... And I'm very excited to announce this, is the host of a new segment here at the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast called The Kansas City Crypt. And we'll take a movie out now and compare and contrast it to a movie from way back when. This month, the inaugural, he tackles, of course, The Mummy which is part of the new Universal Dark Universe and was just recently released, starring Tom Cruise. Mr. Chamberlain compares and contrasts the new one versus the old ones from the classic era of Universal Monsters. You can probably tell where it's going to go, but you might be surprised by a few of the things he has to say. That'll be coming up soon in the show. And then after that, of course, we'll be doing some Beef McCormick, For Your Eyes Only, Chapter 4. So yes, we were out at Monster Bash and we had a great time. I was there to work, which was fine, actually. I, I don't consider my work work. I really, really quite enjoy it. I like being at my table and talking to people and trying to sell them on the idea of what it is I do. And I very much enjoy interacting with those folks. And I've been out to Monster Bash, this is my fourth time, over the course of the last seven years. I went in 2010, and that's where I met Dr. Bob Tesla, the now official horror host of the Mimiverse, and of course the guy who tells quote-unquote jokes in every episode of the Mimiverse monthly audio cast. And then I went back in 2012, 2014, and now 2017. And it was a good time each time. We always do really well there, but it's where the Mimiverse fits best. The Monster Bash convention in Pittsburgh celebrates cheesy old monster movies from the silence up through the, the Universal Monster movies into the 50s and 60s. And so the folks who go to that are the types who appreciate what it is I am trying to do. So I always do very well. And when I go there, I see a lot of people I recognize over the years because they come back year after year. Even so far as the first year I went there was a small family with two, at the time, 13, 14-year-old boys, twins, who were very, very excited about my movies and bought a bunch. And then every time I went back, those two and their parents would buy whatever they needed. This was kind of cool. Again, this year, they were there, but they're both in their early 20s now. So they they went from kids to young adults. And they sat and talked to me about how they're both going to college now for filmmaking. And so it was really entertaining to talk to these kids who you could tell back then have always been big fans of, of movies. And now they're looking at them as young budding filmmakers. And they had a million great questions, like really good questions. 
and it was really fun to to talk to them and see them growing up. It was exciting to be there and talk to these fine folks. And I like those kinds of things. I like seeing people pursuing their dreams and going after what it is they enjoy. Because that's what I've been doing for over a decade now and want to continue to do and push and strive to do month after month after year after year. Ups and downs, crazy people, not so crazy people, fun, not so fun. And I'm not ready to stop. So let's keep moving forward. Demon with the Atomic Brain should be out soon. And I can't wait. So with that in mind, I think it's time to throw it off to our newest segment. Kansas City Crypt, hosted by Rich Chamberlain. And after that, when I come back, we'll launch into For Your Ice Only, Chapter 4. For now, Rich, tell us about the mummy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first edition of the Kansas City Crypt. This is the Monster Movie Kid, Rich Chamberlain. I've got a question for you. What does Boris Karloff, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Brendan Fraser, and Tom Cruise have in common? Well, yes. On the surface, they have absolutely nothing in common. Well, at least Brendan Fraser and Tom Cruise certainly should not be in the same category as Karloff, Cushing, and Lee. Those we know have something in common. They are legends in the horror film community. Brendan Fraser and Tom Cruise, not so much. Yeah, I think you know the answer. Yes, they're all stars of mummy movies. Now, we have a new mummy film that's been in the theaters now. By the time you listen to this, uh, roughly about a month. And, well, it's kind of had a lackluster response. Not a big surprise. Most of us old-school monster film fans really were going into it with low expectations. What we got, well, we'll talk about that in a second. What we haven't really heard anyone talk about is where the mummy films started out. I mean, we'll hear about Tom Cruise, and they'll say, yeah, but what about the original mummy film? You know, the 99 version with Brendan Fraser. What we're really not hearing enough people talk about is Karloff and Cushing and Lee. And we should mention Lon Chaney Jr. as well. In 1932, Boris Karloff started it all off with the original Mummy film, The Mummy. Eight years later, Universal kind of kick-started up the series again with a 1940 film called The Mummy's Hand, followed by a trilogy of Lon Chaney Jr. films between 42 and 44, and then finally, technically, wrapping it up with Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy in 55. Just four years later, Hammer Horror Films kicked off their Mummy film series, which had a total of four films between 59 and 71. Now, Universal brought The Mummy back in 99 with the start of the Brendan Fraser trilogy. The Mummy, The Mummy Returns in 2001, and then Tomb of the Dragon Emperor in 2008. Yes, I just mentioned the Dragon Emperor movie. I'm sorry. Now, I guess we could just even go a deeper dive and say that there's even a spin-off of films from the well, the Brendan Fraser trilogy, the Scorpion King movies. There's a total of four of those films, believe it or not. Uh, let's not talk about the Scorpion King. Let's talk more about the roots of the Universal Horror films, the original, 1932 with Boris Karloff. 
Now, the movie was set in 1921. By today's standards, it seems like it's a period piece. I should say it, it starts off in 1921. Um, now, that was technically only 11 years before the film was released in 32. So, even though to us it seems like it's a period piece, at the time, it was only going about 11 years back. Or, for us, going back to, say, 2006. The Mummy, of course, is a different film. The original, there's certain elements that were kind of the same in the new Tom Cruise film. But really what it was about was an Egyptian mummy named Imhotep. And he's discovered by a team of archaeologists. He's brought back to life through a magic scroll. And basically, he's trying to, well, he's trying to find his lost love, who is apparently in the form of a, of a, uh, of a contemporary modern girl. Uh, his old love has been reincarnated. Now, the mummy is only seen in the opening moments of the film. And then that's it. We don't see him shambling about in the rest of the movie. Jack Pierce did some fantastic makeup work for uh, Karloff as Imhotep and did some equally really good makeup work for Karloff's appearance for the rest of the film. It was traditional makeup work that made the mummy look fantastic. Now, honestly, in the other films, uh, the four more films that followed between 40 and 44, uh, the mummy makeup is just not as good. And the performances and the plots and everything it certainly kind of dipped very quickly into B-film status. And the original film, though, fantastic. You know, Karloff and the makeup work of Jack Pierce and just the overall presentation of the film has made it a classic. And we're still talking about it in 2017. And that's the question. Are we going to be talking about Tom Cruise and his version of The Mummy? You know, what, almost a, a century later? I just don't think so. In this new version of The Mummy, it's the, well, it's the official start of this new dark universe. Now, yes, the old-school monster fans, we love the idea of doing something like this, but we immediately knew that it wasn't going to be really what we want. And this first movie pretty much sealed the deal. It's not going to be as atmospheric as the original films. And again, yes, the Karloff films, the Cheney films. Uh, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Those films had atmosphere. Even the B-movies with Lon Chaney Jr. had more atmosphere in them than we got in the Tom Cruise version. There were elements of mystery and horror and even some comedy that worked in those original films. Well, it worked most of the time. Yeah, I'll admit, there was some forced humor along the way. But it was still entertaining. Now, if you're listening to me, you probably think I don't like this new 2017 version of The Mummy. Well, I don't love it, but I don't hate it either. There are elements of this film that are entertaining. But, you know, it's, it's just another CGI film. And, well, Tom Cruise, look, I can separate Tom Cruise the actor from Tom Cruise the, the religious icon. But I just got to say, I think he was miscast in this film. And while I love Sofia Boutella's version of The Mummy, I actually think that's you know, very good. I think she put in a great performance. And I even liked Russell Crowe's performances, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But there was lots of just odd moments in this movie. The, uh, the odd moments between Tom Cruise's character, Nick Morton, and the character of Chris Vale, played by Jake Johnson, really odd humor that's just placed at odd moments. It kind of took me back to An American Werewolf in London a movie that did it a million times better. 
And there was also the forced romantic storyline between, uh, again, Tom Cruise's character of Nick Morton and the character of uh, Jennifer Halsey, played by Annabelle Wallace. This didn't work for me. There were six different writers on The Mummy, and I think that pretty much kind of says it all. Too many hands in the pot. And I gotta say, although there were some really cool moments, the underwater sequence I thought was amazing, the movie really isn't a horror movie. It's more of an action epic. I liked the uh, I liked the first two Brendan Fraser films. Again, they don't hold a candle to the Karloff or even the Hammer horror films. Uh, Cushing and Lee knocked it out of the park. But I actually thought the first two Brendan Fraser films were actually entertaining. There was some horror elements, but again, it was kind of a kind of a take on the Indiana Jones kind of uh, action epic. I really didn't care for Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, and while the Mummy, this new 2017 version really does harken back more to the Brendan Fraser version, there's really not much of Karloff or Cheney or Cushing or Lee to be found. Now, this new Dark Universe—that's a whole other topic that we can talk about. This is the start of it. We know there's a Bride of Frankenstein film coming. The question is, will Tom Cruise be seen in the future films? Kind of indicated that he would be. However, Tom Cruise has also been labeled as one of the biggest problems in this movie. I've said this before. I think there's a possibility that we will see his character pop up in other films. The question is, will Tom Cruise still be playing the character? Or will it be recast? Or will they change direction? I kind of think it all depends on Tom Cruise's contract. Now, one thing I thought was interesting, too, is that the mummy was actually a female. I actually liked that idea. It wasn't supposed to be. Originally, it was male, and supposedly the mummy's gender and appearance changed after Apocalypse made his first appearance in X-Men Days of Future Past. That's part of the rumor mill. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. I actually kind of like the idea, although I think it was probably unnecessary but it actually works for me. When you compare the original version of The Mummy, the 1932 version and this new 2017 version, there really is no comparison. The two films are night and day. The original Karloff film is atmospheric, with old-school makeup, and a legend leading the cast. The 2017 film, well, honestly... It's not going to have the longevity. It's already being forgotten, and it's not really a great start to this dark universe, uh, this universe of films that we have. I'm interested to see what comes in the next several years. For now, I'm going to say it's kind of a weak start. There were certainly some problems with it. There's a few things that I liked. I'm willing to see where they go. But for me, there's nothing like the original with Boris Karloff. And if Boris Karloff isn't available, I'll find Lon Chaney Jr. Or I'll find Christopher Lee. And if all else fails, I'd go back to the Brendan Fraser films. Oh, okay, the first two, at least. That said, you be the judge for yourself. The Mummy 2017 is not a horrible film. I don't think it's as bad as others are saying. But it doesn't hold a candle to Karloff. You can find my reviews at KC Cinephile. That's for Kansas City Cinephile. That's kccinephile.com. And if you want just the monster-related reviews, then go to monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. But Kansas City Cinephile is where you'll find everything I'm doing. Until next time, this is the Monster Movie Kid, here 
at the Kansas City Crypt. Thank you, Mr. Chamberlain. I hope we continue to hear from you in subsequent shows. And now, it's time for Chapter 4 of For Your Ice Only, the Beef McCormick espionage-slash-curling novel I'm writing and presenting to you every month. So without further ado, here it comes. For Your Ice Only, Chapter 4. Anger. Disappointment. Seething hatred. These emotions, and many others like them, burned within the pounding chambers of Ivan Bentnoff's heart as he redirected the stolen news helicopter away from the panicked crowd assembled outside the curling arena below. His mission had been simple and straightforward. Destroy his rival, Beef McCormick, at any cost, and, ideally, make it look as if he himself had been killed in the process. In theory, Plan A was flawless. But Beef's unmatched curling skills foiled the plot. Plan B was dirtier, less refined, but should have been equally effective. Unfortunately for Bentonoff, Beef McCormick again proved his instincts extended beyond the ice and into the deadly game of espionage. Bentonoff wasn't sure if it was luck or something else entirely, but Beef's ability to avoid the bullet intended to scramble his gray matter was nothing if not impressive. As he reran the events of the day through his mind, Bentonoff experienced a mild sense of pride knowing he had bested Beef McCormick in hand-to-hand combat. Sadly, the pleasure was tainted by the gnawing sensation provided by his failure to finish the job. Beef McCormick was in no shape to defend himself, having been incapacitated by a well-timed curling broom to the face. It would not have taken much effort to destroy Beef's uncommonly handsome visage with a series of swift kicks. A few more and Bentonoff's mission would have been a success, except, of course, for the nagging issue of having failed to fake his own death. He had had the chance, but didn't take it. How could he have? The longer the helicopter hovered and shined its exceedingly bright spotlight upon them, the greater the chance he would be discovered by the traumatized masses at the bottom of the hill. To top it off, it was clear the flying machine belonged to an American news outlet. Having no idea whether or not the news crew had the ability to transmit live video back to its parent station, Bentonoff felt he couldn't take the risk of being outed on television, especially if the images being transmitted included the beloved American Skip being summarily executed in cold blood by his Russian analog. Bentonoff's primary mission may have been assassination, but causing a very public international incident which could easily escalate to out-and-out war between two already twitchy nuclear-armed nations was never part of the plan. Hindsight being 2020, none of it mattered now. Bentonoff needed to get out of the sky before the local authorities pulled themselves together. At this juncture, he had the element of surprise on his side, and that gave him a head start. Crunching the numbers, he developed a new strategy. It wasn't foolproof by any means, but it was the best chance he had to get away clean. This was not the first time Bentonoff had visited Minnesota, having on several occasions been in the state to participate in bond spiels and various curling activities. He'd heard stories of a famed lake along the border of a neighboring state, which marked the beginning of an area known as the Deadlands, a stretch of untouched forest populated almost exclusively by woodland creatures, the perfect place to ditch and destroy his ride before he himself could slink into obscurity. Having a rough idea of where he was in relation to his new destination, he pointed the nose of his ill-gotten aircraft toward the lake and threw the throttle open wide. 
The next ten minutes were a blur of second-guessing and paranoid sweat, as the density of the city gave way to random, demarcated plots of land surrounded by old-growth trees. He knew he was close. Finally, he saw the open expanse of the lake and breathed an audible sigh of relief. Covered by a blanket of white, the frozen body of water would serve as an impeccably remote landing pad. Bentonoff eased the helicopter's landing skids several inches into the soft snow about 30 feet from the shoreline. Moving with great speed, he exited the pilot's seat and dug through the craft's storage compartments. He took anything which seemed helpful, including one of the crew's brown bag lunches, tuna sandwich, an apple, and a thermos of something, a sturdy but not particularly cumbersome wrench, a possible weapon, an emergency blanket to help ward off the wintry winds, light blue and appropriately thick, and a small survival kit complete with matches, a pocket knife, and first aid supplies. Not knowing exactly how long he'd be in the wilderness before he might find a way to request extraction, he figured every little bit might prove useful. Before venturing out into the cold, Bentonoff removed his parka and strategically wrapped the blanket around himself, paying close attention to padding his core. Satisfied by his new layer of weather protection, he put his coat back on, found pockets for most of his new acquisitions, and hung the survival kit by its handle through a loop in his belt. Lastly, he grabbed the grappling hook curling broom he had used to hitch a ride and slid the side door open. Despite the extra layers of fabric, the wind howling across the ice and snow-covered lake cut through him like a freshly sharpened knife. Ignoring it as best he could, he jumped out of the helicopter. The heavy impact of his feet hitting the ground produced a loud, muffled, cracking noise, which reverberated heavily through the frozen water below. Perhaps the ice is not as thick as I had hoped, Bentonoff thought. I had better hurry. Expeditiously, Bentonoff made his way to the rear of the aircraft, propped his broom against the side and searched for an access panel. Upon finding it, he pried it open and swiftly located the fuel line. Pulling the small knife from his jury-rigged utility belt, he snapped it open and, after kinking the fuel hose with his free hand, started to vigorously saw through it. Frustratingly dull, the undersized blade seemed to be doing very little to work through the thick rubber hosing, but... Slowly but surely, it was getting the job done. As the ice beneath his feet cracked much louder than before, a murder of exasperated cawing and cackling crows took to the sky as the sound reached them high in the leafless trees. In response, the ice shifted ever so slightly. The helicopter yawned in protest, and Bentonoff knew bad things were on the brink of happening. Having finally split the fuel line in half, Bentonoff released it, and gasoline began to stream out. Confronted by the warm, noxious fluid, the snow melted and formed a small puddle. Bentonoff replaced the knife into the kit before taking several careful steps backward, each one gingerly testing the structural integrity of the ice below. Happy with the distance between himself and his getaway vehicle, he snagged a match from the box, struck it, and watched it flicker and blaze brilliantly, the scent of sulfur dioxide filling his nostrils. With a skillful flick, the tiny flame landed right in the middle of the puddle of gas, igniting it immediately. Bentonoff turned toward the shore and began to run like hell, an action made all the more difficult by the depth of the snowpack. It took only a smattering of seconds before the flames crept up the trickle of fuel and made its way into the tank. Ten feet from the edge of the lake, Bentonoff was thrown face-first into the powder as the explosive shockwave slammed into his back. Fortunately, the softness of the accumulated snow cushioned the force with which he hit, and he was none the worse for wear. 
Adrenaline surging through his veins, Bentonoff laughed out loud as he looked back at the burning wreck. He didn't expect it to go up so rapidly, but he was always one to appreciate a good fireworks show. His joviality was short-lived, however, for the intense heat and concussive violence had comprehensively fractured the already tenuous layer of ice upon which he and the flaming chopper found themselves. The surface buckled and the helicopter lurched forward. Within mere moments, the ice split open with a titanic snap and began to swallow the aircraft whole. Hissing, angry columns of steam rushed into the air as fire met icy liquid. Something akin to panic took hold of Bentonoff as exponentially multiplying fissures appeared in the ice around him. He attempted to scramble to his feet, but the slick surface beneath him dissipated and spread, eventually giving way completely. The frigid water hungrily engulfed the Russian athlete, and the full-body shock was almost too much to bear. Several long seconds later, he resurfaced with a brutal gasp. The pain of the cold mutated into vague numbness as Bentonoff tried to focus his mind. He was but a very short distance from the lakeshore, and the giant break in the ice created by the now wholly submerged helicopter ended just inches from his face. His thick parka, the blanket wrapped around his midsection, and his clothing were thoroughly drenched, making it feel like he was dressed in cloth made of lead. As the numbness spread like a poison, the urge to give up started to rise within him. But, Bentonoff being Bentonoff, he fought it with everything he had left. With a powerful kick of his legs, he propelled himself to the icy, jagged edge of the open water and reached out. He tried desperately to get a hold of something anything to help free himself from the deadly waters but the powder was too deep and loose thinking fast he reached into his coat pocket and found the wrench he had procured from the copter's toolbox using it as a spike he jammed it into the ice in front of him and grabbed hold with both hands with every ounce of upper body strength he possessed he arduously pulled his torso up and out of the water kicking his legs like mad he pushed his lower half onto the ice like a seal quickly rolling to his side and away from the open water Covered in multiple layers of sodden clothing and at the mercy of sub-zero winds, Bedinoff couldn't allow himself a minute's rest. He forced his anesthetized extremities to respond, coercing his violently trembling body out of the drift. Once upright, Bentonoff oriented himself toward the lakeshore and shuffled sharply forward. So stiff he could almost swear he heard his joints creak like an old door. Movement felt good as blood flooded back into the smaller veins and capillaries. With each painful step, he began to remove his clothes. First his waterlogged parka, then the soggy blanket. Next was his shirt and then his pants. Finally, he made it to the snow-covered beach and stood proud in nothing but his skivvies. The inhospitably cold winds clawed at his bare skin, but it was infinitely better than being covered in an onion skin of bone-chillingly soaked cloth. Despite the soul-sucking deep freeze, Bentonoff chuckled with the knowledge that yet again he had faced death and escaped its hungry jaws. As he looked out at the gaping hole in the ice, steam still rising from below, Mirth quickly yielded to stone-faced reality. Shivering like a newborn chihuahua, Bentonoff realized he was utterly vulnerable. Every advantage, no matter how small he had acquired from the downed helicopter, had been destroyed during his unplanned swim. Even his curling broom had disappeared into the depths of this fabled body of water known as Phantom Lake. It was time for a new plan, and fast. You are right there, buddy? Bentonoff tensed at the thick northern Minnesota accent coming from behind him. Hey, pal, you okay? Ivan Bentonoff had just recently prevailed in a brutal confrontation with Beef McCormick. 
killed a news crew, stole their helicopter, and survived a brush with icy liquid oblivion. As a result, he was in absolutely no mood for any more strenuous activity. Because of this, and because he sensed no malice in this mystery man's voice, Bentonoff decided to take a different approach than he normally would. He plastered his face with as pathetic a look as he could muster and slowly turned to face the man to whom the voice belonged. The mustachioed gentleman who stood before him looked to be somewhere in his late fifties, early sixties, his expression one of genuine concern. Beneath a thick winter jacket, the man wore what appeared to be a policeman's uniform, although one Bentonoff had never seen before. Inexplicably, the man held a canoe paddle in his right hand. With the lake frozen over, Bentonoff had no idea why he needed the paddle and surmised that the man was either very fond of it or possibly using it for stability in the deep snow. Playing up the shivering, Bentonoff adopted a flawless Midwestern accent and tried to smile as he stuttered, uh, I've been better. Yeah, I can imagine, Mr. Policeman said with a sympathetic grin. Unbuttoning his coat, the officer stepped forward and handed it to the nearly naked man before him. Without hesitation, Bentonoff accepted and lost himself within it, its thick, downy plushness still retaining warmth from the older man's body. I'm Officer Gustafson of DeFantom Lake Canoe Corps. And who might you be? My name is Benton, but you can call me John. Bentonoff's inflection and intonation were dead on. Good to meet you, sir. Now, you mind telling me just what in the heck you're doing out here in the freezing cold, wearing next to nothing? I... Bentonoff's mind raced as paranoia started to creep its way up the back of his neck. You the pilot of that helicopter went through the ice? Why, uh, no. The length of time Bentonoff held the well-rounded O and No would have made the most true blue Minnesotan proud. No? Officer Gustafson's eyes squinted, his crime-fighting instincts tingling. No. You see, well, I was out snowshoeing, and I heard the copter flying real low overhead, so I decided to follow it. Saw it come down on the lake and saw the pilot jump out. Real shifty-looking fella. Yeah. Yeah. Officer Gustafson nodded. Something about the way the policeman stared into Bentonoff's eyes made Bentonoff nervous. He started to surreptitiously formulate the quickest, most efficient way to dispatch the man, should it be needed. So I see this pilot guy fiddling with the back end of the helicopter. Not sure what he's doing, but I didn't want to confront the guy, not knowing what exactly is going on, you know. I mean, I'm out here all the time, but I keep to myself mostly. I'm thinking, if I was out here with a helicopter landing on the lake or whatnot, I wouldn't want anybody bothering me. Despite the bitter cold, Bentonoff could feel beads of sweat forming on his brow for fear he may be overplaying his hand. Officer Gustafson continued to stare, never once breaking eye contact. Yeah, yeah, I get that. So I watch as he starts to run away, and then babak! The thing explodes like a toad in a bonfire. Is that a saying? Bentonoff wondered, ultimately deciding to go with it. Next thing you know, the ice opens up like a hungry sturgeon and swallows it whole. It's all crack, 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 crack. And the guy goes right in. He starts flailing and splashing around and panicking, and I knew if I didn't do something, he's going to drown. So I ran right out there to give him a hand. Laid down on the ice the way you do and reached out, but as soon as I got there... Down he goes. Oh, yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, and that's when the ice under me gave out. Luckily, I was able to get out in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The accent felt like razor blades in Metanoff's mouth. He studied the officer's countenance, but the man remained stoic and somewhat impossible to accurately read. 
A very strained, nerve-wracking moment passed as the men continued to stare silently into each other's eyes. Finally, the officer broke the awkward silence. Yeah, well, sounds like you did all you could. The tension in Bentonoff's shoulders eased considerably. Why don't we get you back to HQ? Get you warmed up with a nice cup of hot coffee. We can take an official statement and then you'll be free to go. Sound good? Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Ivan Bentonoff hated coffee. Okay, sounds good. Got it worked into the uh, Mimiverse a little bit. It's official. It's part of the canon. So that's it for this month's Mimiverse monthly audio cast. I am your host, as always, writer-director Christopher R. Mim. Thank you so very much for listening. I hope you were entertained, or at least enjoyed the sound of my voice. Either way, you made it this far. That's pretty cool. Don't forget, as I always say, be good. But if you can't do that, be good at it. For now, I'll throw it off to Dr. Bob to tell you a joke. I will talk to you next month. <laughs> it is I, Dr. Bob Tesla, with your Mimiverse Joke of the Month. A man walks into a sports bar, and he goes up to another man who's sitting there enjoying his drink. And the first man points to a baseball game that's on one of the TVs and says, Oh, look at that. The Indians are going to win. They're going to beat the Twins. And the second man goes, I'm going to cut you off right there. They're only in the seventh inning. They're only down by a couple of runs. The Twins could come back and win this. First man goes, Okay, okay. Then he points over to another TV that has a boxing match on, and he goes, oh, look at that. Deontay's going to win this one. You watched. It won't go more than two rounds. And the second man goes, I'm going to cut you off right there. The match just started. It's anybody's game. So the first man points to another one and goes, oh, man, look at that tennis match right there. Roger Federer is going to win this one. He, he's, there's no way anyone can stop him. And the second man goes, I'm going to cut you off right there. But then the first man goes, hey, buddy, buddy, you know, I'm a bookie and you keep cutting me off all the time. What do you do for a living? And the second man says, well, I'm a moil. Make sure you come out July 8th to the Gateway Film Center when we will be showing a Joshua Kennedy double feature. We will be showing Voyage to the Planet of the Teenage Cavewomen along with Slave Girls on the Moon, as well as a recorded intro for both movies recorded at the 20th Annual Monster Bash in Mars, Pennsylvania. As usual, check us out at www.midnightmonstermovies.com. Midnight Monster Movies.